Welcome to the Sustock Podcast. I'm Susumu Araki. Baseball is underway, and both the Yankees and Mets have gone through at least the first week of the season. And it's a tale of two stories. Tale of two teams, really, is just so different. One side is uh, having a pretty strong start, and that's the Mets right now. And then the Yankees, it's been pretty rocky. And joining me for this episode is one of my main colleagues at WFAA. I I consider this guy my primary mentor in the industry because he taught me everything at the fan that I need to know. And we've been uh, amazing colleagues ever since. And he is the overnight producer for the station, mainly producing for Sal, Sal Akata's show. That man's name is Michael Flegelman. Fleegs, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Oh, well, thank you, Sus. Thanks for having me. That was quite the introduction. I don't know if uh, I'm worthy of all that, but uh, you're one of the great ones at the station. It was great training you and seeing you, know, you still being around all these years later. Uh, you've stuck around and you're growing and it's awesome to be here with you today. It's been good. And I, I also forgot to add the part that like you also, you can also hear him on the fan as he hosts on either weekends or he fills in on the overnights as well. So I also, I forgot, I apologize for not mentioning that part either. So it's because I, I look, I produced for you twice when you filled in and both times we got really lucky because the first time it was the possibility that the lockout was going to end. And that kept us going for like a good five hours. Yeah, no, I got very lucky with those two fill-ins on, you know, I do the weekends, but then the weekdays, those kind of came up more or less minute. One was the day where we thought the lockout was ending and all the baseball reporters were up tweeting until 2.33 a.m. and we were following along live. And then I ended up being on the morning, again, unexpected. I found out that day, like, hey, you're hosting that night. All right. And then we find out, you know, a couple hours before the show, the lockout ended for real. So, yeah, I got... I got it. We got very, very lucky with the way those two days worked out. Baseball fans were excited. And now in New York, if you're a fan of one team, that excitement is definitely still there, maybe more. And if you root for the other team, maybe it's uh, decreased a little bit. I feel like for that other team, it's it's pretty much the same as it were left off last year. But let, let's first go. Let's first go to the first team, which is the, the Mets. And my God, I don't think you could. Could, could they have come off with a better start than they've had this season? I mean, look, they've had like one or two games that were pretty much duds. But aside from that, the main story is the starting pitching. My God, like I, I have never seen a collection of top to bottom of the rotation just dominate throughout a whole week like this. Like it started off with Tyler McGill and Scherzer picked it right off, even though and especially last night, like that was like a classic Scherzer performance we saw. Right. And Cookie Carrasco like twice, even though they never really let him finish off. Like he still manages to get like scoreless inning after scoreless inning. And I'm just like, this is really the strength of the team. If these guys keep buzzing throughout the summer, like they're, you know, 90 wins is easily attainable at this point. Oh yeah. I mean, I think 90 wins is the, is the minimum that a Mets fan and the Mets team would want right now. This pitching, it's it's off to an unbelievable start in the rotation. And, you know, the Mets were always going to be built on their rotation. They have Jacob DeGrom. They sign Max Scherzer. They trade for Chris Bassett. But when you get the news towards the end of spring training that DeGrom is going to be out for who knows how long, and we still have no idea when we might see him again, you know, you think maybe that'll take a little bit of a hit. Scherzer, you know what to expect from him. Bassett, you feel pretty good about. But Cookie Carrasco was hurt or ineffective all of last year when they first traded for him from Cleveland. Taiwan Walker, great in the first half in 2021, struggled in the second half, whether it was injuries or him just running out of gas, whatever the reason. Tyler McGill, very impressive when he first came up. Then he ran out of gas. It was the most he had ever pitched in a full season professionally. And then with Peterson, another guy who was really good in his rookie season in 2020 and then tailed off in 2021 and got hurt. So you had a lot of question marks in the middle and back end of that rotation. And, you know, if I had told you that through the first two turns, Max Scherzer would have the highest ERA of any Mets pitcher, I doubt anybody would have expected that. And for them to do what they did those first 10 games, the 1.07 ERA, the best for a team in its first 10 games since they started keeping earned runs as an official stat back in the early 1900s, 1912, 1913, they've been phenomenal. The bullpen has been okay. It's been up and down, but... You know, while we think of the two or three games they might have blown, 
they've also locked down a lot of these games because these starters don't last very long into them now. And then the lineup has been pretty much what you expect. Maybe the home runs aren't there, but they're down across the sport. And the team just brought in professional hitters that know how to hit in certain situations. I mean, this nine and three start for the Mets, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I was at that double header on Tuesday. The crowd is into it. The Met fans are into it. They're ready for a fun season. And I think a lot of Mets fans, you know, there's always that, uh, well, it's the Mets. They'll, they'll start off hot sometimes and then they'll fall apart and all that. But this team has a different feel just from the way they act on the field. They obviously have a new owner who's only in his second season and then the Buck Showalter impact. So just across the board, there are so many positive feelings with this Mets team right now. Yeah, it's only 12 games in, but it, it just feels like a different team from all the years past with the Mets. It's different in the sense that I think here's how I know it's different because number one, you're extremely optimistic about it. Cause that's the one primary tale because yeah, from, if, if you've known me, I've, I've uh, never missed a second to bash the Mets when I think that the front office or the coaching staff or ownership are not doing the right thing. And, I don't have those feelings right now. It's very weird for me. Well, except for Robinson Cano, but well, let's uh, let let's let's keep bygones by bygones here. But I, I the one thing I I that I think is really impactful when you see at least the team, as you mentioned, like the attitude of the team has shifted with Buck around. Buck has like this stern, serious face. Like the first telltale sign, you know that things have changed because Buck was like the first guy. It was an opening series against the Nationals. He is the first guy out, out of the dugout when he notices that oh, it was like the third time that a, bat, a Mets batter got hit by the Nationals. So I'm just like, by the way, that's like another thing. What is it with the Mets and getting hit by pitches all of a sudden? Like what it, it's everyone's like, I feel like the entire league now is going after the Mets because of the fact that they're spending too much money. I think well, all again, t- it's not even all of a sudden part of the problem has been, it's been happening for a few years and the Mets haven't done anything about it. And even with Buck, they haven't retaliated. They haven't gone headhunting or throwing at anybody else. But just seeing that from the manager on that Friday night game, it was the second game of the season. They're in Washington, hit batter, and Buck is jumping out of the dugout. He's screaming at Steve Ciszek. You know, it was pretty scary with Alonzo getting hit that night and Lindor getting hit, like, in the face. I mean, these guys, there were some scary at-bats that the Mets went through. And, again, the Nationals weren't throwing at him on purpose. But it was just almost this – this light that went on or like this signal change from the manager to the Mets players, especially the ones who had been here the last few years. So not Scherzer, not Marte, not Escobar, not Canna, but the guys who have been here the last few years and just kind of, you know, the whole organization has been content with the, Oh, somebody threw a 95 mile an hour fastball at us. All right, let's just move on and whatever. Buck jumping out of the dugout and screaming at the opposing pitcher. I think that showed a lot of these players only a couple games in like, all right, this manager, really does have your backs. It's not just words with him, whatever he told you in spring training. And remember, because of the lockout, when they had played that game, first the first series in April, it had been less than a month from all the players reporting to spring training. So Buck had only been around most of them for, you know, 25 or so days. And whatever he might have told them, it's different when you see it in person and on the field. And, you know, that was the night that Buck Showalter really cemented himself as the manager for these guys. And you're seeing it across the board. I mean, Alonzo's fired up, all the emotion, all the reactions you were seeing in that game on Tuesday when he makes the play at first, the stretch to save a bad throw from Lindor. The umpires overturn the call on replay. It goes from the Giants taking the lead to the Mets entering the bottom of the 10th with a ghost runner and in a tie game. You see the emotions on them. And then you look at a guy, to me, there's no better example than Francisco Lindor. Came to New York last year, got the big contract extension, got off to a rough start on the field, really struggled. Then when bias comes in there's the whole thumbs down nonsense the year really got away from francisco lindor and i had been saying for a while before buck was even a possibility i never in my wildest dreams thought the mets would actually hire him just last year as a reason to fire rojas that you know a guy like lindor never had a problem when terry francona was his manager in cleveland Luis rojas and the mets had this idea of let's just let everybody do whatever they want all the time and never really do our jobs that didn't work as soon as Buck comes in, you're seeing it 12 games into the season, and Lindor looks like the guy the Mets thought they were trading for, or maybe even better. I mean, it's it's just it's such a wild turnaround, and it's showing you the impact that a real manager, a good manager, and a good leader, more importantly than just the baseball manager part of it, a leader of men, 
can have on a team still. I think it's also nice to know that there's a manager that reads every single part of the MLB rule book. Like I, I was looking on Twitter, I think on like Sunday, I think this happened on a Sunday. Yeah. And I like, <laughs> I'm just like, wait, what is with all this? And then I realized that I, I will say, I, I think I heard something. He had like the entire team read the entire rule book or something. Well, he and, had analytics staff go over the rule book and see if there were any kind of things that they could bring up in a game. And I guess that was one of the ones they presented to him. He told the players and Tomas Nito reminded J.D. Davis of it when he got to first base. And, you know, when we're all watching it during the game, I didn't know that rule. Who's ever seen that come up in a baseball game? I haven't. You know, most of the guys, clearly the Diamondbacks didn't know that rule. Oliver Perez didn't know that rule. And on the Mets post game after, Jerry Blevins was honest. He didn't know that rule. But you know who knew it? Buck Showalter knew it. And he taught his team how to be ready for it. And in a, I mean, only 10 games in, you were seeing it pay off having a manager who was more prepared than the guys on the other side of the field. It's again, sus from somebody who's been rooting for the Mets my entire life. Bobby Valentine was a great manager, but I was younger when his tenure was here. And then for a long time, Terry Collins was very good. I don't want to slight Terry in any way, but especially then after the last four years, the two with Mickey Calloway, the two with Rojas to go from that to Buck Showalter, I mean, it's like dirt and mud on your shoes to swimming in gold. It's such an unbelievable turnaround. It's almost hard to capture. I, I just think to myself, like, I'm just going back. It's just my mind is like going like even Oliver Paris has been in the league for like 20 plus years. He didn't right. know about it. <laughs> I'm like, it could have it should have passed by Oliver Paris by now. Like right, come one on. Of the players in the league. <laughs> I, I think like it, it's like every a yearly thing. I feel like Buck always reads like the updated rule book, even if he's not managing a team at all. He makes it a point just to read the entire book. That's what I really thought happened. But I, I, look, the the attitude and the whole thing is really really shifted. I do like the the default face that we see from Buck, which is like he has that ex- a stern expression. It's like he's serious like all the time, which. And there's not like a look on his face that says like, oh no, what do I do? It's wait, let's be calm. And then let's see what, and let's proceed with the next move. And it's, I think the rest of the team, it's like, it's really resonating. And, and I got to tell you, it's, it's just really nice to see a legitimate manager. And that's the part of a base of the baseball team that you root for that. Like you don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, It's my favorite part about this team. Like I'm, I'm thrilled the Mets signed Max Scherzer. Obviously, what kind of Mets fan would it be? But I don't think it's crazy to say that the person who will have more of an impact on the 2022 Mets is Buck Showalter than Max Scherzer, just because of what Buck does for everybody involved. Like, you know, I already talked about what it's done for Lindor, just what having a guy like that in the dugout. You talked about that, that signature look he has. It's almost like when you're a kid and an adult just gives you that stare. Like, they're not going to tell you what you did wrong. They're just going to stare at you, and you're just going to wait. You're going to realize what you did wrong, and then you're going to apologize, and then you're going to turn it around without them having to say a word. They're just staring at you. That's the feeling you get with Buck. I mean, he is that leader, and then if somebody needs him, he knows how to help him out in whatever situation. Again, all of this, the personal stuff on top of knowing more about baseball, than just about anybody else working in the game. I mean, I mean, the Mets went from such a nothing in terms of a manager and leadership to having one of the best you could possibly ask for. And you're seeing early how much of a difference that can make. Also kind of want to give a quick shout out to uh, the general manager. What's Billy Appling? Is that, that's his name? Appler, Appler. My God, my, my bad. Uh, Uh, Former Brian Cashman protege. Wow. Wow. Because I, I knew that he came from the Angels organization. I started getting really concerned because I was just like, oh, the Angels. Oh, no, they haven't done anything in a decade. Um, but then I kind of realized, wait a second, it's kind of night and day for him because like he was under Art Marino, who didn't exactly. There was a point where he would just stop spending and you could tell by through his decisions at start at the starting pitching position at least for the angels, but he goes to the Mets. He links up with Buck and he also links up with uh, Steve Cohen and his pocket full of cash. And it's just completely night and day. This guy's just like, Oh, finally, I get to enact my plan that I've always wanted to put on my base on a baseball team. And then he goes out and he makes, starts making these deals. And what, like 
Scherzer, Marte, Canna, Escobar. And then much later into spring into last month, they get Chris Bassett in the trade. And I, Chris Bassett for me is my favorite signing, my favorite acquisition so far. Um, I think I watched the game that his first, his first start against the nationals. And then the post game afterwards, like the, the answer that he gave was just like, wow, now, now that's, that's somebody I want pitching behind Scherzer and the grub, somebody that he may not be an ACE level talent, but he has like the mentality and he thinks like he is. Like, oh, absolutely. I want that. It's like in a third, like a third or fourth rotation guy. Like I want that guy. Like think he's think he's like an ace, even like despite what his limitations are. That's the kind of pitching rotation I want. And I feel like the rest of the team is just like the mentality is just basically like it's it's so grounded and everybody is like together, and none of them have like at least lost focus. Like minimal, like minimal times that they've lost focus, but like it just feels like everybody's locked in right now. And that's so rare, especially at the start of the season where everybody's kind of like feeling everything out, but it feels like the rest of the team right now is just extremely locked in. Yeah. And winning obviously helps with that. But one of the things there had been this mis, uh, this idea around the Mets for the last couple of years that the chemistry was so great. And I don't know how true that was. I kind of argued against it the last few years, but now I think it's for real. The last few years, it was more just, Everybody's happy because everybody's allowed to just kind of go out and do whatever they want. So most of the guys liked each other, but it wasn't chemistry in the way we think of it of, you know, actually improving a team, making them better them making each other better and using that in an effort to win games and have a better year this year. I think it's more of the, you know, how are we going to work together? Chemistry feeding off of each other. You know, you mentioned Bassett, his quote after that game, about not being afraid of anybody going after Juan Soto, the mentality we know a guy like Max Scherzer has, then Buck bringing those guys in and then just letting that kind of affect the whole team and everybody feeding off of that, that desire to win that you don't see all the time. The Mets certainly haven't seen it the last few years. And to be honest, if you look around baseball, it's not always there with a lot of these teams that fire, you know, that just that drive to win it's missing with a lot of organizations I thought the last few years, people said the Mets had it at times. I disagreed. Now I think it actually is there. And I think it's going to be a big key change throughout the entire year. It's showing like all across the board. Like right now I'm looking at the, uh, the, the bats, the stats, especially on the batting side. And also, cause like, look, I already know how dominant the pitching is. You don't need to tell me like Chris Bassett right now is working at an ERA under one, which not sustainable. But, you know, that's impressive for at least in the first week, at least in your first few like starts. But uh, I'm looking at through some of the averages like Lindor leads the leads the team with a 310 ER, 310 batting average. And right behind him, like Nimmo has been pretty decent before he uh, got on the got on the COVID list at McNeil. My God, Mc, I, I, I just that's one of the big keys to me. If McNeil is really the Jeff McNeil of 2018 when he came up and then 19 and 20 and not the guy who just couldn't find any success in 2021, that changes the Mets lineup. Because I wasn't sure, to be honest, if he would be able to get back to that point. He seemed so in his head, angry, frustrated all the time. And I wasn't sure if he'd be able to get back to the here he was. Knew the talent was there, just wasn't sure if he'd be able to get to that point mentally. But I give him credit. I mean, give McNeil credit. And then Buck Showalter and Eric Chavez, the new hitting coach, and the philosophy they have. I mean, they're still a team that uses analytics, but they're maybe not as beholden to the information or as reliant on it as they tried to be the last couple of years where they just told the players, all right, here's all the numbers. Now go do with it what you will. The coaching staff is actually doing its job, filtering that information for them, making it as simple for the players that they can. And Jeff McNeil is one of those guys hitting a simple form. It always has been go up. He's a see the ball, hit the ball kind of guy. doesn't have to be more complicated than that with everybody. Not everybody has to be the same. It doesn't always have to be this blanket approach. And you're seeing that because the way Nimmo hits is not nearly or close to the same way that McNeil hits in his approach when he's at the plate or Lindor or Alonzo. They're giving these guys all the tools they need to be successful while still letting them be themselves. And again, so far it's early, but it's paying off dividends. You're not going to learn a ton about this team until they go through their first rough patch. But from what I've seen so far, and the personalities and talent that they have on that team, 
whenever that rough patch comes, I think they'll be able to make their way through it. And that's the a difference between this year's team and the teams of the last few years when, when things went bad the last few years, especially last year, they didn't know what to do with themselves. The only, the only reason I mentioned like McNeil was most was because I, my question for you was like, do you like the fact that he, he could play all over, like all over the field or would you rather be like him, him stick at second base? Because like, I've heard like people arguments saying like, I like the fact that he's versatile. Like, look, one of my favorite baseball players in the league right now is Chris Taylor, because he could just play anywhere on the field. And I just like, that's such an invaluable, like, like trait to have is being able to be plugged into any position on any given day. But I, you know, sometimes like some players are good with it. Like Chris Taylor clearly doesn't care where he is, but some players would rather play a certain position. Like, and McNeil has like been much more comfortable at second base, but he can play like third base. He can play at the corner outfields. Do you, would you rather him be a singular position guy or do you, do you want him to embrace his versatility? I mean, I, you like the versatility, especially you use it when you have to. Like when the Mets had Brandon Nimmo and Mark Hanna on the COVID IL, Jeff McNeil had to play left field. Now Nimmo's back, Canna still isn't, and, you know, you're still going to see McNeil in left field for a little bit. But when the team is healthy and they're at full strength, I want McNeil at second base every day. You know, Escobar at third, Lindor at short, Dom Alonzo, you figure out first base, DH, occasionally DHing J.D. Davis, Canna in left, Nimmo in center, Marte in right, you platoon the catchers, and Robinson Cano, if, if I had my wish, McNeil would be at second every day, and Cano would be nowhere near the team. But the versatility is definitely useful, and it's great to see McNeil embracing that more than maybe he used to, or at least being more comfortable with balancing, hitting, and preparing to play a position, different position on the field every day. But I think ultimately he'll be better, and the Mets will be better off if he's at second base every day. Um, do you like the new uh, defensive outfielder like backup that they've gotten this year in Tra- Travis Jankowski? Because we've seen all over, over the years they tried to fill in that position, Almora with Lagares, and it's just never worked or panned out. Do you think Jankowski is the one? I, I hope so. Listen, he can just be okay. I mean, Sandy Olsen had a string of the extra outfielders he would bring in, and all of them would just not even just be bad. We're talking to us about guys having the worst years of their entire careers, like the Chris Youngs, the Al Morris, some of these guys. Polar was good last year, but they would bring in guys who, you know, were decent major leaguers, not great, Alejandro Diaz, guys who could still play, and then they would come to the Mets and, oh, this guy's hitting 111 in the middle of June. Like, they just, they completely forgot how to play baseball. It doesn't look like that's the case with Jankowski. You like what he brings with defense and speed and he looks like he's okay enough at the plate to the point where next week when they have to cut somebody from the roster, when the league goes down from 28 to 26, I've made no uh, secret about it. I don't want to lose Travis Jankowski and that valuable fourth outfielder. That's when I would say goodbye to Robinson Cano and buy him out, do whatever they have to do, because, you know, it might sound crazy to some people, but if you ask me who's more valuable to this team, Travis Jankowski or Robinson Cano, it's Jankowski. He's a useful player. I want to keep him around. It's it's a tough pill to swallow, though, because how many years does Cano have left on his contract? Is this it year or next year? You know, maybe you could. They could talk themselves into a buyout. They really could. <laughs> they could just say, uh, you know, we'll just pay you for this year, next year, and we'll make sure that you find a new team. How well, how, how does that sound? Robinson? Make some kind of arrangement with them. Tell them, Robbie, if you if you're lucky enough to convince some other team to sign you for the league minimum, go there. If not, you know, maybe give him some kind of, they talk about how valuable he is in the clubhouse. And I think there is something to that. I think a lot of the other players respect Robinson Cano because of all he's done in his career and how long he's been around. Then find some kind of, you know, makeshift coaching position for him advisor and keep him around in that way. But I I don't want to see him up at the plate anymore or in the field. And I, and I do want to see Travis Jankowski stay on as a member of this team. Maybe uh, maybe just secretly uh, shift Robinson back to the Yankees and figure out and just send them over there. It's like like a, it's like you just send them out. It's like oh we'll just take cash. We're good. <laughs> just we'll we'll take like uh, I don't know like five hundred thousand dollars. How does that sound, guys? Oh, I, I would take a lot less than that. 
that it's like here we'll we'll take you for like we'll, we'll give you robinson cano all you need all you need to give us is a dollar and your and your finest vending machine <laughs> that, that that that's so mean i'm that's so mean to that that's i feel like that was way too mean to Robbie. You, you think that's mean i've said some things about robbie i'm trying not to be mean because i it's not an anti robinson cano thing it's an anti this version of robinson cano like i think people you know when i go after him when i do the shows on the fan or on twitter and you know people talk about oh he, he was this he was this yeah he was he's not anymore he once was a great player he no longer is. There's a lot of guys who were great 10 years ago that I wouldn't want playing for my baseball team right now. Robinson Cano is one of them. Speaking of, um, speaking of like Robinson Cano and people connected to him, um, how do you feel about Edwin? And the and I mean, the bullpen has been probably like the biggest Achilles heel so far. Like Lugo has been very iffy out on the mound this year. Like I'm looking at the stat, like Drew Smith, who I have no idea who he is. Like he has like the most holds. <laughs> Jason, guys like Jason Streep, Adam Adovino, AKA I, Adam, I think I'm pretty sure I could strike out Babe Ruth out of Vino. Um, and then Trevor May, I, I've never felt easy about Trevor May pitching for some reason. I like him as a person. I like the, the bit, I like his YouTube channel a lot, but I've never felt, easy about him on the mound at all so i guess like right now for me like the one concern is like what can you do to make the bullpen better right now it's just a lot of hoping and waiting until the trade deadline where maybe you can add a piece or two uh i've never been the biggest edwin diaz fan i i hated the trade not that they traded for diaz just what you know that they didn't have to give up jared kelnick to do it it could have been all right we're going to take on robinson cano's entire awful contract just give us diaz and we'll call it a day but Edwin Diaz, he's been impressive this year. He's off to a good start. I'm one of those Mets fans that will just never feel absolute confidence when he's on the mound. But to be fair to him, and, you know, the we're even not as a Yankee fan, just growing up in New York, watching Mariano Rivera all the time, I think in New York we got a very warped sense of how much you can trust a closer or any reliever on any given day. And, I mean, Seth Lugo, Edwin Diaz, those are guys who have both been dominant at times during their careers. Edwin Diaz off to a good start this year. Seth Lugo, not so much. He's probably the biggest key in the Mets bullpen because if Lugo has a bad year, then it's going to be a real struggle for them to get to June or July when they can add another piece. If Lugo can sort of steady the ship, Trevor May, like you said, you'll never, you'll always have that uneasy feeling with him, but he's not bad. He's solid. You could do a lot worse. Shreve, I think, has been an underrated pitcher for a while. He was really good for the Mets in 2020 in the shortened season. He's off to a good start. Joely Rodriguez looks like a guy, okay, he can face lefties. Don't get cute with him against righties too often or he'll come back to bite you. And then Drew Smith is one of the guys who they, when they traded, when they sold off the team back in 2017, he's one of the guys they got. They got a lot of relievers and only one of them showed you any potential. And that was Drew Smith. And every time he looked like he might've been taking that next step in his career, he would always get hurt. Now he's taken what looks like a big step in his career where he could become a trusted late inning reliever. And if you're a Mets fan, you just hope that he doesn't have an injury pop up again because Drew Smith looks like the real deal. For all those guys they acquired at the end of that year, he looks like the one real legitimate bullpen piece they got. Well, you basically convinced me that as long as this team holds up and they keep winning it heading into July, they, it's like that's that should be fine. And then really that's just – you can just patch up the pieces and then get because there's always bullpen arms on the market on the trade deadline every year. Like oh, how yeah. many? And this is that's where Steve Cohen's money will come in very you know handy. Last year I think was a year that they thought and things changed again for them when they got the news that Degrom was injured. But last year was a year I think they expected a lot of teams to be selling off pieces. Maybe it didn't happen in the same way with teams just wanting teams didn't want just money back. They were wanting higher prospects and they were kicking in the money. This year, I think the Mets will be a little bit more prepared. Again, I like having Epler being the guy to make all these decisions and running the ship rather than Sandy Alderson. And I think they'll they'll get a piece or two for the bullpen if they need to at the end of July. There's always at least like five guy, five bullpen arms get dealt every year. Oh, so yeah. being like getting at least one of those five is like that's pretty much a win right, right off the bat. And I don't know which side you want to get a right or a lefty, but we'll see like where, where, where the chips fall and where, where they really need to uh, basically bulk up at. So 
I guess like to wrap up on the Mets because you were at um you were at open opening day. Can you just get like a quick like like what was it like in the atmosphere? Like when you were tailgating, seeing everybody, like was it just like feel different or did it feel like this is just like an opening day? Everyone is always like this every year. Did it feel different? No, I've been to a couple. This was my fourth opening day. This and then not not counting last year because last year was weird. You know, there are only eight thousand people allowed in City Field. Uh, this one felt different for a couple of reasons. The Seaver statue was one, so a lot of people were there early. I was there early. I got to watch that ceremony with my dad, Steve Summers, and Bob Husler. So that's something I'll never forget. You know, my father, and then you know, Met fan royalty, WFAN royalty. Uh, so there was always oh, a different feeling going in because you know, Met fans, especially the older ones, had been waiting to see that statue for so long. And then just a different feel. You know, it helped that the team had already played a few games, was off to a good start. But because of Steve Cohen, because of Buck Showalter, because of Max Scherzer, there was a little bit more buzz this year. And when they're playing and they're winning right away, that feeling carried through the entire game. And even yesterday, that Tuesday doubleheader, it was a very cold April day. When I got there in the third inning of game one, it was brutal outside. It was incredibly uncomfortable to be outside. But fans were out there. They were rooting on their team and the Mets were down two to one and then four to one at this point. You know, the weather got better as the night went on, which was a little strange. But, you know, the end of that game, when the Mets come back and tie the game and then they win it in the 10 and then into the night game with Scherzer pitching, which was, I think, what most people were there to see his first city field start as a Met and then going five and two thirds without giving up a hit. There's been a different feeling around this team in the ballpark. I've been there three days so far. There's a different sense. There's a different feeling. What would you say is like your favorite? Uh, what's your go-to like um, food and drink at City Field? Well, it's gone right now. I was and I thought it was still going to be there. The uh, Fuku Chicken. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with. Oh, it. the yeah, Dave Chang joint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I loved there. Um, you know, the chicken sandwich is is good. I like it. Um, but they had the chicken fingers and the spicy fries. I loved those spicy fries. That full stand is gone. You can still get the chicken sandwich, but you can't get the tenders and the fries. That was my favorite. I mean, Shake Shack is a classic, and now it's bigger. It took up all of where Blue Smoke was, and I'm walking by it on opening day. It's now twice the size, and the line is still you know, so long and wrapped around, and you're wondering, how is that possible that there's now <laughs> twice as many people taking your orders and making your food? But Shake Shack's a classic. I like the Patsy's Pizza, and uh, while I'm disappointed in the chicken tenders, I still love that Fuku chicken sandwich. I mean, that, that thing is delicious. You know, my theory is, I think I think uh, Steve Cohen was really prepared. He knew that there was going to be a large influx of fans this year. So he thought, we got to make our signature concession stand bigger. And he knew that, like, the lines were going to still be long. No, nonetheless, because if he kept it the same, it would have been like that. It would have stretched all the way out from that point all the way to center field, probably. No, which it did, center field or left, whichever way the line went, you know, <laughs> it, would, it would stretch on for 100 Just- all the way to the foul pole. All right, you might be onto something. One thing we know about Steve Cohen, smart businessman. Because the place I usually i i get the i get i go to the the rice ball stand like right by right in front of the Fuku Fuku right. store, and i i get that all the time. It's so good. Um, but you know, can't go. You can never go wrong with a with an Italian sausage sandwich, Italian sausage, and a. Uh, whatever you can get from like one of the other like generic default uh, burger right. fry places. So. Right. Right. Even they're just their burgers, fries, the Nathan's fries, the hot dog, you know, it's all good. One good thing about city field is I have season tickets. You can go, you know, 10 times over a month and you can eat it something different and something good every single time. See, I feel like city field, they have, they've always like when they built it and they were constructing it, they were really thinking about like the baseball, like, and mind you, this, this was, they built this during the Wilpon era. So that's a little, that's a little surprising that they actually put in all this effort in, into really understanding like, what does the baseball fan want from their stadium? Oh, they want like this baseball stadium that like actually feels like a ballpark and it doesn't just cater to like one, like certain like group of fans. It caters to everybody. Right. Well, there's good and bad with that because you're right. It made it such a great destination. The only problem was you could have walked around and this is what bothered Mets fans in the beginning. Cause you could have walked around and said, okay, what team plays here is, you know, is who's, whose home is this? Uh, but now uh, the Wilpons started to get there and Steve Cohen, really, they've made it both a fantastic place to watch a game, a great destination, a great food hub, 
and clearly visually all over the place, the home of the New York Mets. Now City Field is as good as it gets. It's a beautiful stadium, which I, which is something I can't say about the new Yankee Stadium because I thought, you know, I, I really it was like, oh, it's it's nice, but then I realized it's just basically the same Yankee Stadium, but they just updated everything. It's just like there's nothing really special about it. Yeah, especially not if you're like a regular fan. I mean, we for all we've heard, the suites and all that stuff, the clubs are great, but for the regular fans, it's just a more expensive you know, version of the old place and the old place, you know, had the memories, the nostalgia, all the, all the magic, all the stuff they love. So a lot of Yankee fans, I think would go back to their old stadium. If they're not out sitting there in the legend suite or the legends club, if they're out in the bleachers or if they're in the upper deck, you probably miss the old stadium. Just, just want a quick, quick hit on the uh, Yankees. Is it just like, are we, is this just going to be their whole season now? Is just um, this whole, up and down, up and down. Because I feel like now they're they're starting to understand what it feels like to be the middling team in New York. Yeah, well, the thing is, this was their season last year. I think people forget because they ended up winning over 90 games. They had that two-week tear in August where they couldn't lose. The most of the rest of their season was this. They'd be really good for a week, really bad for a week, just up and down, you know, kind of hovering around 500, a little bit better than 500, but not much better if not for those two weeks to the middle of and end of August, you know, they were in a slightly above average baseball team. And in the off season, they didn't do much to improve that baseball team. It's very similar to what they were running out there. You could argue maybe it's better. Maybe it's worse. You know, right now, maybe the bullpen is still great. Maybe they added, you think one improvement in the lineup. It certainly doesn't look that way right now. I know some people wanted to make that argument for a Josh Donaldson or what would happen if you had Anthony Rizzo for an entire season as opposed to two months. But Garrett Cole looks like he might be taking a step back, and that's a legitimate concern. I don't think he's going to pitch to an over 60 RA the entire season. He's way too good for that. But he might not be the guy that pitched for them in 2020 and 21, and the guy they got from Houston from the few years before that. He might not be that guy that's nearing 20 wins and an ERA in the low to mid twos. He might be a guy who, you know, is a 15 game winner with a three and a half ERA and with the rest of their rotation, is that enough for them at the top? Yeah. I think this is going to be most of what their season is with a lot of frustration and you know, they're not going to be bad. I don't think there's any worry or concern about this Yankee team falling apart and finishing below 500 and just having a bad year. But I also don't think there's any reason to believe that they can go on a great run over a month or two and finish with more than, 92 93 wins and then play well deep into October I think they're right in that middle of the pack where we know the organization is okay with that just you know be good enough make the playoffs and hope you get lucky in the postseason and get hot and make a run I don't know if this team is built for that run and I understand why Yankee fans want a lot but they have higher expectations it's just the reality because of what the organization has always been so while that be decent and just get into the playoffs and take your best shot there that mentality might work for 28 or 29 other franchises. It's never going to fly with most Yankee fans. And I don't really fault them for that. I don't blame them either. It's just because there's so many, so many things happening. It's just like, there's a sense of uncertainty. You don't know what you're getting with judge because he basically said, no, I'm going to bet on myself and try to get even more money from you guys. And you have other spots in the lineup that, I, I just, there's a sense of concern that's like, they, I don't think they added, they, they still missing that guy that can just get on base. You know, they're still missing. They, they're like, they're missing like, their Starling Marte or a guy like that. Just yeah. somebody who is just more of a, a, a well-rounded baseball player than the kind of guy they have. I mean, the, I've defended Brian Cashman for years. And I still think, you know, there's much more good than bad with Brian Cashman. You know, for all the complaints about the lineup, look at that bullpen. Nobody else in baseball could put that together one year, and Cashman's now done it five first years in a row. Joey Gallo's a black hole. I mean, Joey Gallo, I don't care what numbers you want to throw at me, and I'm not an anti-analytics person. I'm not anti the advanced stats and the new age stuff. There's nothing you can tell me or show me that'll tell me Joey Gallo is a good baseball player when all the guy go, does is go up and strike out. He might run into 35, 30 to 35 home runs a year, but how many productive at-bats or plate appearances is he having? If he's going to start every day and approach 600 plate appearances, he's got to, he's got to be better 
more of the time than he is for me to believe in a guy like Joey Gallo. I mean, you saw it yesterday in that game. He goes 0 for 4 with four strikeouts, and if he got up the fifth time in the ninth inning, he probably would have struck out again. There's just the Yankees really bought in, I think, too much to the all-or-nothing approach. You know, they're not a very fast team. They're not a very athletic team. There's just there's something missing. You said the on-base guy? Yes, somebody like that. That spark, they need a guy like that. When Velasquez came up last year for a couple weeks, you know, a career minor leaguer shortstop gets a shot just because of the speed and like that little edge he played with that helped them for a time. They need something like that right now. It's too much of the same station to station. Hope somebody hits a home run. If not, okay, well the team didn't score that inning. And, you know, we talked about with the Mets, that fire, that emotion, that passion you're seeing from them. You have not seen that from the Yankees in a long time. And I think part of that is just, it's the entire approach of the organization and the manager does not help in any way. I was a big Joe Girardi fan. I am not an Aaron Boone fan. I don't think anyone's a fan of Aaron Boone right now. I think the basically the honeymoon phase just ended. Uh, the first year they hired, he got hired, got into the playoffs, and he, and you know you lose to the uh, you lose to the Red Sox in the playoffs. I'm like you know it's fine. It's good for a first year manager. Good job, good job. Lose to the Astros, get to the ALCS. And but lose the Astros, then you know what? You, you went up a level, that's fine. And then it's just like they plat they plateaued and now they're starting to dip and decline. And I think the and I think everyone's getting frustrated. It's like, oh no, this guy's fall, this guy's declining. That's that's bad, that's really bad. Um, but I just can't shake the feeling that, like, I, I don't know, would you have fired Aaron Boone right off the spot after the uh, the wild card game last year or? Do you think you would have given him another another year to figure it out? No, I would have moved on. And it's funny because the guy I was saying that the Yankees should have hired last year, again, because I never thought the Mets would actually do it. I thought the Yankees needed a guy like Buck Showalter because Buck Showalter is not one of these all-time managers who's totally against the information or the analytics. He'll take it and he'll apply it in his way. But I think the Yankees needed more of a blend of that. I think they're tilted way too far to one side that they forget that you know, this is a game where right now it's 28 human beings playing on their active roster. It'll go down to 26 in a week. But either way, they, they're forgetting the human element that's such a part of that, both in their approach to building a team and just you know cycling guys in and out of the lineup every day, changing their spot in the lineup every day. You know, One day you'll hit second. One day you'll hit sixth. Baseball is a game. It's way too mental for that to be the entire approach. And I get – the numbers tell us a lot of the story. I understand how useful they are, but you can't forget that you're then giving them to, again, 26 but or in your lineup. You're then giving that information to nine hitters, nine men who have to go out and do a job, and you cannot forget that those are human beings that might all process it differently, might all just work with it differently, and you need to have somebody on that staff, ideally a manager, who knows how to work with all of them as a group and individually and inspire all of them and lead all of them, put them all in the best situation to be successful. And I just haven't gotten the sense in any way since Aaron Boone, Boone took over that he did that maybe briefly in 2019 when they dealt with all the injuries and the team stayed afloat. But this team in 2017 was in game seven of the ALCS with Joe Girardi. They have not been back to that point with Aaron Boone. You can say game six was close enough and we all know the Astros you know, maybe that series could have gone differently had the Astros not been doing what they were doing. But in 2018, they weren't good enough. They weren't better than the Red Sox. 2020, I think we wrote a lot of stuff off to our oh, short season. You know, had they played a full 162, the Yankees would have been a lot better in the end than just a couple of games over 500. But then they rolled almost that same team into 2021, and they weren't really that much better over 162. And now through 11 games of the 2022 season, it just looks like more of the same. It just looks like the same Yankee team that's been on the field for three years now. And we're not seeing any improvement. We're not seeing them get that much worse, but we're not seeing them get any better. And we're not seeing a team that's really going to push for a world series. Does anybody think this Yankees team is going to go on a run on a tear in October and get from a wild card series all the way through the world series? I don't. It's tough to say. Well, it's, it's looking bleak now. I'll just say it that much. It's just, I don't know. If, if Garrett Cole is not putting up the numbers he's supposed to, because like I don't trust anybody in that rotation, 
I, I can. Like, you put that I, guy. I like Severino a lot, but if Severino stays healthy and pitches a lot early in the season, he has an innings limit at some point. Then that means he's not going to be there at the end of the year. So what can you – how much can you really realistically expect from Severino because he's coming back from the surgery? You know, Jameson Tyone, what are you really going to get out of him? Jordan Montgomery, he's fine. At some point, is anybody in the league going to catch on to Nestor Cortez? If Garrett Cole is not the – 30 plus million dollar a year ace the Yankees signed him to be that team's in a lot of trouble. And when you sign that deal nine years, you knew in the back end that it would not be all that great, but you expected year three to still be getting Garrett Cole at the top of his game. And right now there's still a lot of time for him to turn this season around, but he does not look like he's anywhere near the top of his game right now. And it looks like it's both a physical and a mental issue. That wildcard game really got to him. Um, I want to wrap things up quickly by doing a quick speed round and um, just do a quick speed round. We're going to cover most of the bases here. Um, so first off, let's, let's go right to the jets. So the Debo news that just came out today where he's requesting a trade from San Fran. Um, would you go for that? Would you go for trying to get Debo almost immediately? No matter, even if it meant giving up the 10th round, 10th overall pick. I definitely would have made the call. I don't know if I'd give up the 10th pick. I'd rather start with the two twos. But actually, I don't think Debo is going to get traded. I think the Niners are going to hold on to him. He'll be unhappy. They just have his rights for too long. He has another year under contract, and they can tag him twice. I think he plays at least another year in San Francisco before they trade him. Would you make that same offer for two twos for DK Metcalf? Yes. Metcalf, Brown, pretty much what the Jets were willing to offer for Tyreek Hill. I would do it for Samuel, Brown, Metcalf. i do it for all of them. Oh my God. Because I, 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 I was taking it back for a second because the, the thought of DK Metcalf in a different uniform just like basically just like faded me for like a good five seconds. I don't yeah, know why. Especially I, if you don't get back the pick that the Seahawks gave up in another trade years ago. Like I know it, it's, it's tough to make that trade and not get back the 10th overall pick. It's, it's crazy to me that this is actual discussion point. I, I remember I was listening to this like, what if, the Jets traded traded Zach Wilson for Russell Wilson. Like you trade Russell Wilson for Zach Wilson, the very pick that you traded that you you got for Jamal that you got for Jamal Adams, and then all these other picks. Like I, my brain would have exploded if that happened. I would. I, I, it's like in some way I'm actually I'm really happy that he went to Denver's team, aka Gallo's team. I'm really I'm happy that he went to Denver because I don't have to deal with. Uh, every jet fan going down my throat saying like, aha, ha, we got your quarterback for basically the exact thing you offered for Jamal Adams, all that stuff. I, I would have, I would have basically just like been done with football for a year. I would have yeah, just been that, like, that would have been rough, but uh, now you get to deal with Drew Locke and Geno Smith, that combo. So good luck with that. Um, Gino's fine. Gino's okay. He's learned he's matured from his time as a jet and he is not going to get punched by some, uh, training camp linebacker anymore so he's well past that point <laughs> at least be happy that Gino had like one two quarters where he looked really good against the Rams <laughs> it's like this is the Gino the Jets wanted right that's that's the one that's the one that they wanted uh no I mean I'm I'm hopeful like Gino's fine but like god I can't I cannot stomach Drew Locke as a quarterback they need to draft somebody no I don't blame you listen go Go two and fifteen and get the first pick and make your choice next year. Yeah, they've never had the first overall pick. As the Seahawks as a franchise have never had the first overall pick in their in their ever. And it's so rare to get it. It's like I think there's like five other teams that haven't gotten it. And the Seahawks are one of them. Did they have it in the movie draft day? Is that the only time? Did they I don't, have it wait, Is that them? What? I thought the Browns had it. I thought the Seahawks is who they traded it to. Maybe not. Is it draft day like that really bad uh that bad Kevin Costner was in that movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought the I thought the Browns, I thought the team they got the first overall pick from was the Seahawks, but might be wrong. Isn't that the one that where they made Kevin Gosner play a really bad general manager? Uh really bad, you know, a Maverick type, different. I guess uh you have to watch the movie and decide for yourself. How, why would they put Kevin Costner, a sports movie legend, onto that movie? Oh my god. Um, speaking of movies though. The new Thor trailer, uh, Love and Thunder, and then Doctor Strange, uh, Madness of the Multiverse. You've seen both of them. And I got to tell you about the Thor one. That 
it feels like they've figured out how to make a Thor movie because Ragnarok was a hit and now Love and Thunder looks incredible. Uh, Ragnarok changed everything for that character. It changed a lot for the MCU. I mean, Taika Waititi just did a phenomenal job with that movie. Obviously, we found out just how funny the character of Chris Hemsworth can be. And Thor Love and Thunder looks incredible. And even in just a short teaser, I'm so pumped for that movie. And we'll probably get more after Doctor Strange comes out. Who knows what that movie changes for the whole MCU. But I'm pumped. As somebody who's a big MCU fan, you know, that week I'll have the Moon Knight finale on Wednesday, right into watching Doctor Strange on Thursday, and then getting ready for uh, Thor Love and Thunder a couple months after that. I mean, that movie look is going to be wild. Thor Love. Both the movies are going to be crazy, but in terms of just the, you know, the laughs and the entertainment, if you're in for that kind of movie, more of a comedy, you know, goofy thing, you're going to get more of that in Thor than you are in Doctor Strange. A lot more. What are your thoughts on uh, No Way Home? No Way Home, because speaking of the multiverse stuff that was going on, I I've seen like clips of that movie and everything, and for all the buzz that I was getting, like I really thought like this was really the year they could have easily put that as a best picture category in the Oscars, and I would have definitely said, you know what, that's fine. That actually is okay. I'm I'm so fine with that as being nominated with the rest of the other Oscar esque movies. Oh, I would have been fine with it. I didn't watch most of the other Oscar nominations, and it's funny because it would have paved the way. Because a movie that I did see that just came out, uh, have you seen Everything Everywhere All at Once yet? I've not. Uh, that's a no spoilers. That's a kind of you know multiverse kind of story, and that movie is unbelievable. That's one of the best movies I've ever seen in my entire life, and so that's probably going to be a Best Picture nominee next year. And so they could have just had two years in a row of a picture that included the multiverse being nominated for Best Picture. Look, as a longtime fan of the Spider-Man movies, the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire came out when I was 10. So I loved that movie, loved the second one. Third one was one of the most disappointed feelings I've ever felt in life and just in a movie theater, walking away like after all the buzz, this was really, you know, what they made. Uh, loving the character, the comic book, you know, one of my favorite superheroes, if not my favorite that movie was just incredible. No way home. I loved every second of it. I just, I felt like I was a little kid again when I was watching that movie. That also was good because they gave justice to, uh, to Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Better Spider-Man than people remember. The move, the first movie was good. The first amazing Spider-Man second one was a disaster, but it wasn't because of Andrew Garfield or Emma Stone. And they also basically, they fixed Jamie Foxx in that movie too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> looked like Jamie Foxx instead he- of, yeah. It's like, oh no! And they, they did a good job poking fun at the uh, the old movies, and Marvel's done a lot of that recently. Just kind of poke fun at the, all right, you know, we've given you a lot of hits. Here are maybe the duds we've had or the bad moments. Laugh with us, nobody's perfect. I think it's good too because it felt like it gave closure to both the first, the the Raimi and the uh, the Amazing Spider Man like set of movies. It's like a nice like curtain call for both of them. Right. Cause and like it you right up into Sam Raimi, even though Dr. Strange was supposed to come out first originally, it sets you right up for Sam Raimi who directs Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness. Really? He's, he's up for that. Oh my God. That's really nice. And apparently like, is that one like for, I've heard like some stuff about uh, the, the new Dr. Strange movies that there's like different, it's like a, basically an MCU movie that's so different from like the other, from like previous MCU movies. That's what we've heard. And I can't wait to find out how. You know what? When when you're dealing with the multiverse and you're bringing in that whole dimension part, I'm just it, it opens up different avenues of what they could do. It also leads to potentially like you know Marvel pursuing and trying to get even more properties back. But that's the avenues that they're basically opening with that movie. I think that's what that's the major impact that it's going to happen is that it's going to basically propel like Marvel and Disney to go after like the Fantastic Four, the X Men. They're going to go after everybody. Yeah, we know they have them under the umbrella now that Disney bought Fox. And we'll probably get a good sense after this movie or by the end of the year, which one of those Marvel plans on bringing into the into the MCU first. My guess would be the Fantastic Four, but they'll, they're going to start to incorporate one of those two major tentpoles pretty soon. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. The only the only property I, I for them I don't want them to touch, I don't want Disney to touch is Deadpool. That's it. Just leave that to Fox. They did it. Ryan Reynolds, like Deadpool is perfect. It's perfect the way it is. Don't change it. Just keep him out of there. And just like the whole joke be, everyone's welcome back except Deadpool. 
Yeah, listen, just let Ryan Reynolds and uh, the people that he's worked with continue to run things creatively for Deadpool and just, right, keep that, you know, mostly off to the side because those two movies, especially the first one, don't change anything about that franchise. No, don't. And and also be hilarious if they just like, okay, uh, you know, Wolverine's coming back in, uh, Mr. Fantastic, welcome back. The Thing, Human Torch, uh, you're all welcome back in. It's like, oh, you Deadpool? Nope, nope, you're not allowed in. Nope get out. You're just, you're not in the club. Nope. And then that could just give Reynolds material for years. Right. Right. He can, he can run with that. He can make that work. It's like, I'm not allowed it. It's like, what? I'm not allowed in the MCU. It's like, I made the goddamn MCU. <laughs> something like that. I, I don't know. It's... And he could probably flash something. Out. There's probably some metric he could find. Yeah, I have a better score on Rotten Tomatoes than all of these MCU films. Like <laughs> it's that. like half of your films. I did better on the box office than all right. these other films. Some, something to that extent. Um, right. Do you like the fact that they're starting to get a couple, a couple of series like on Disney Plus now? Have you like because Moon Knight you mentioned, and do you because it feels like they're kind of like using the using the streaming service like Disney Plus to experiment with like different other shows. Like they tried to put out and test out and try different like genres and different um, different types of stories. So I feel like that's, they're going to use, I feel like the Disney Plus is where they're going to try to like test out different things to see if anything works or not. So I feel like it's, you know, with the, with Disney Plus, like the, those uh, mini series, it's, it's going to be a lot of hit or misses for me like i did enjoy uh falcon and the winter soldier that i enjoyed but i couldn't get into uh wandavision i think that's the way it's going to be for a lot of people because they can experiment a little bit more like look as much as we'd like to see them get completely crazy with a bunch of movies the movie making business is the way that it is that there are certain things they're always going to do with movies and certain things they're always not going to do when they're making a movie of a major franchise like that so where they can get more experimental is TV. And, you know, you and I growing up in the golden age of TV, someone who like in you, uh, you know, recently starting the wire, like you go back with what TV's done over the last 10, 20 years and just the way that that medium has grown. And yeah, they're going to have some stuff in the MCU on TV that is very, very different. I mean, Moon Knight isn't like any of the other shows that have come before it. Some people are going to love that. Some people are going to hate that. And some people are just going to be fine with it, not really have, and opinion either way. I tend to love that stuff because I want to see all those different things. I don't want to see the same thing over and over and over again and, you know, let different people be creative and see what they can do. And, you know, let, let's have some fun. It's entertainment. So let's have some fun. If you like it, watch it. If you don't like it, don't watch it, but let's, uh, let's just have some fun. That's what, that's comic books there. You know, all the characters are so different. There are some that are light. There are some that are very, very dark in the content. Let's just, let's make things up. You know, speaking of The Wire, they're coming out with like a new series that's pretty much a spiritual successor for The Wire. And next week, <laughs> I'm guessing that you're going to be right on it immediately. You're just going to start watching yeah. it. I don't know if I'll be able to watch it on Monday nights when it premieres, but every Tuesday, at least, I'll be watching those episodes. Yeah, I, you know, I got stuck on The Wire and I'm still trying to finish season one. I feel bad because like I tried, but I, you know, you have a, I had like this friend who's really into it and he, and he does that, you know, you get like those kinds of people that um, they tell you to watch a show over and over again. And they get, it turns you, it gets to a point where it, like, it turns you off. It like, turns you yeah. against the, the watching the show. Oh yeah. I don't know why people do that. I hate when people do that. It, it's just like, why you're, it's like a magnet. Basically you're trying to like bring me into whatever you're trying to get me into, but like what you're doing is like the opposite. Like, I, I've been there before, both as the on the receiving end and the giving. I had a friend who I told for years and years because he was a comedy fan. You have to watch Community. You have to watch Community. He finally gave in and finished the whole series in less than a week. And on the receiving end, when somebody kept telling me for years, you have to watch the show Breaking Bad. Yeah, it's on AMC. I know you, nobody ever watches AMC, but you have to watch the show Breaking Bad. And this might have even been before it was on Netflix. You know, you got to get the DVDs, watch Breaking Bad. I'm like get out of here. I'm not getting the DVDs of some show that's on AMC and watching it. And then, you know, before the final season, watching Breaking Bad on Netflix and saying, all right, you know, I, I made a mistake over the last few years. I should have been watching Breaking Bad this entire time. So Breaking Bad, I think I, I caught like the last season in, in high school. It was like on a Sunday night I was watching it. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then like no context at all. It's like, it's, it's pretty cool. Even without, even without the context. 
Yeah, like a great show, The Wire. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to do what your friend did, but if you stick with it, you will, you will not regret it. Like I was really into it too, because like, I, I, you know what I texted you? I was texting like, right. Like, you were giving me full reports. You were into it. And, like MVP for most part. Um, I was, it's, and then like the least valuable player, like there's like definitely ways like you can really get into it. Like I, you know, but when, when someone does that to you, it's just, you can't, you just want to take a break from it. You know, and then you find like other avenues, and then afterwards, maybe you'll come back to it eventually. Like I'm kind of that's the great thing about our world these days. Between sports, movies, TV, there's always a million other things to do at the time. It sucks because like this, this, this current age of like television and entertainment is like there's too much stuff going on, and it's like you don't you don't feel like you can actually complete anything. Right, you have there's stuff you have to eliminate. You know, if, if Marvel keeps putting out all these shows. I'm either gonna have to stop watching Marvel stuff, or I'm gonna have to cut other stuff out of uh, you know my daily routine. Yeah, it's like it's just there's too many things. I'm I'm like, can we can we slow down? You know, can we just especially if the Mets are really good in September and I have to be locked into the games? You know, September 20th, the last few years, it might be like, all right, let me have the Mets on in the background on my second TV or my iPad while I'm watching TV. Now, if things keep going the way they're going, that Met game is front and uh, front and center, which I'm not complaining about, but it changes things. By the way, I think the who's like the key like opponent for from the division that you feel like you have to take down. Like yeah, it's the Braves, right? I it has to be the Braves. Yeah, like nothing the on the Phillies. The Phillies will be there all year. I think the biggest competition is still the Braves, especially because Acuna's not back yet. He'll he'll be back in a couple of weeks, and they showed you last year how even though it's a little bit of a different team, Freddie Freeman's gone. How quickly they can turn things around. It's still the Braves. I think. I kind of anticipated like the first month that they were going to be like slow because when you lose someone like Freddie Freeman and he's just like not there anymore, he's like the heart and soul of your team. That's right. going to and take. And Acuna is not playing. No. In early May. Who's like, who's the leader now? Is it, is it Dansby Swanson? Is it Ozzy Albies? Is it Austin Riley? Who's that guy? Cause like, I don't know if it, maybe it's Acuna, maybe it could be him. Yeah, but I think like it's Acuna when he comes back, but you're right. That, that it's missing. And, it takes some time for the entire clubhouse, especially with the short and spring training, for all of them to adjust to have that new team and just everything is going to work. I think it's just going to be a head-to-head between the Mets, Mets and the Braves. Like, I, I don't know why. I, I just a great race, and I think the Phillies are just going to be hanging around like a gnat all year and maybe tail off in September. But for most of the spring and summer, the Phillies are going to be right there with the Mets and Braves. Well, so much for being a Marlins and Nationals fan. So much for them. Marlins will be better than people think. Marlins will, you know, have a decent year. They're still very young. The Nationals, I think, are awful. I don't know why Nelson Cruz signed with them. <laughs> and money and uh, listen, he'll be playing somewhere else in July. You know that. That He's getting good. traded somewhere. Like I, it, I don't know where. It's all like... the National League teams are on the table, so some of them <laughs> added nice DH. It sucks because, like, why? Maybe like the Met, Mets could have convinced, or someone could have, like, Steve Cohen could have basically convinced Nelson Cruz, don't sign with a NL division. I love Nelson Cruz. I've always loved Nelson Cruz, and I was trying to think in the offseason, ah, can the Mets possibly make this work? But and, and it's a good reason why they can't because they have so many players who have to play. They really didn't have room for somebody who can only DH. But I love Nelson. He's Cruz. like forty plus years old, and he's still hitting decently. Right. Oh yeah. He's really just going to have Julio Franco's career, isn't he? Yeah. It's going to help a lot of guys who now there's the DH in both leagues. A guy like Nelson Cruz can stick around for a while. He's, he's going to fulfill the role of old Jason Giambi in the late, late two thousands, <laughs> Matt stairs. Do you remember Matt stairs was like oh, hanging around for five more years than he should have like Jack Cust or something like I'm naming random power hitters for no he reason. We played for a while. Tim Tomey played for like how long? A long time. Oh my God. I remember even near the end of his career, you know, you had to fill up the utility spot, but you could do worse in fantasy in terms of what he would give you with the home runs and the, and the RBIs runs out. You, you could do worse than Jim Tomey in, in his forties. Oh my God. That, that takes me back. Um, my favorite, let me, I'll wrap it up with simply saying my favorite Mets image so far is just Sterling Marte. And he's just like giving like this pose, like you've seen that picture, right? It's like yeah. I think it's during like the second game, like against the Nationals. He just stood up like on the on the dugout, saying, "It's like really, you guys are doing this, okay?" Right. <laughs> I mind the tie, the Buck one, obviously, when him just kind of like giving that tilted head look and looking over to the field in the Nationals dugout, and uh, 
the second one came from yesterday. If you saw Pete Alonso during the doubleheader because it was freezing, had like the orange like mask or scarf around his neck, whatever it was, but he had to pull down most of the game. And uh, I was sent a picture. It looked like Fred's ascot, Fred from Scooby-Doo, big Scooby-Doo fan. So that's now up there with the buck one for me. We got a mystery on our hands. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, Fleeks, thanks so much for popping in. We went the distance here. Um, let the people know how they can reach out to you on social media, what you've been up to. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at mfliegelman. It's M-F-L-I-E-G-E-L-M-A-N. And uh, I'm on the fan five days a week producing the overnights and hosting some fill-in overnights during the week and then on the weekends. Uh, I'm next on this Sunday, Saturday night into Sunday morning, two to six. So most nights, if you just turn on WFN and the overnights, I'll be around in some capacity, whether I'm answering the calls or on the air, I'll be around. And he's a, and he's a really chill call screener too. Just, just don't be afraid to give a call. Like a lot of the, the, you know, the, the regulars know him, know him like, you know, know him by now, like they almost to the point where it's just like, you'll have a conversation conversation every now and then like you'll, it'll just if we have the time for it we'll have some fun the next couple of days i'm working with the morning show so i get to be a lot more of a hard ass on the morning show callers uh, like al usually does so thursday and friday this week i get to be a little tougher on the callers but then when we go back to the overnight you know the friendly mike fliegelman shows up <laughs> al dukes has really rubbed off on you hasn't he listen it's it's part of, it's part of doing that show it's part of the job don't blame me blame the job <laughs> got gotcha all right that's gonna do it everybody don't forget to follow this podcast on spotify as well as anchor.fm or apple podcast as well thank you everybody for listening and i'll see you guys next time